Well, you can turn with me in your confession of faith to chapter 8 as we conclude our study in the section of Christ the Mediator. So Cam dealt with the person of Christ, I'll deal with the work of Christ, so I'll pick up reading in chapter 8 at verse, or at paragraph 4. Chapter 8, paragraph 4, I'll read to the end of the chapter and then we'll look at this in some detail. So beginning in paragraph 4, this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven. And there sitteth at the right hand of his father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successively, from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed, and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from, from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday and today and forever." Christ, in the work of mediation, acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. To all those for whom Christ hath obtained eternal redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making inter intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his Spirit, revealing unto them in and by the word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation, and all a free and absolute grace, without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. This office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. This number and order of offices is necessary, for in respect of our ignorance we stand in need of his prophetical office, and in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God, and in respect of our averseness and utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. Amen. Well, as we consider the, the chapter as a whole, we noted in chapter 8, paragraph 1, the pre-temporal appointment of the mediator. In other words, it sets out in a general overarching statement 
statement, the plan and purpose of God, the Father, through the work of His Son, to be the mediator of the elect. And so chapter 8, paragraph 1, gives us a covenantal context. And that covenant would be the covenant of redemption, that pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian uh, covenant between the persons of the Godhead to save God's people from their sins. And then you have, secondly, the historical revelation of the mediator in paragraphs 2 to 8. So you have the incarnation of the mediator in paragraph 2. It answers the question how this one, the Word, the, the Son of God, became man for us and for our salvation. It deals with what we call in theology the hypostatic union, the union of the two natures in the one person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then paragraph 3 takes up the anointing of the mediator. So now that Christ has assumed our humanity, the Spirit fits him for the particular work of mediation. And that's what you see there in paragraph 3. So Christ is the one appropriate and suitable to carry out the demands of the covenant of redemption in another co uh, covenantal context called the covenant of grace. So he is the one appointed by God to save his people from their sins. And then in paragraphs 4 to 8, you have the work of the mediator. And we'll get into that in some detail in a moment. But then in paragraph 9, you have the exclu exclusivity of Christ as the mediator. In other words, this uh, office is unique to him alone. It's not that it's shared by the Pope of Rome. It's not shared by any Protestant Pope in his or her, not her, well, shouldn't be a her, but in his or her church. Unfortunately, that's the, the context in which we live. And then in the paragraph 10, you see sort of an elaboration or a further description of what we call the threefold office of the mediator. So Christ as mediator functions as a prophet, priest, and king. It's introduced throughout the, the, the entirety of the chapter, but then it's given some detailed description there, specifically in verse 10, or paragraph 10, on how it is that we need what Christ brings to the table in terms of our salvation from sin. So look back to paragraphs 4 to 8. You see, first, the historical description in paragraph 4, the specific operation in paragraph 5, the retroactive application in paragraph 6, Paragraph 7, Cam already dealt with this. This is referred to as the communication of idioms or properties. And then in paragraph 8, you have the effectual application of Christ's work on behalf of his people. So basically what we have is the, the, the identification of the mediator. He is the word made flesh. We have the appointment of the mediator. He is the one set apart by the Holy Spirit to do that work of being a prophet, priest, and king. And then now this description of what he does specifically relative to that threefold office in terms of his work on our behalf. So look at paragraph 4, and you notice in the first place the voluntary assumption of his work. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake. I think we've seen that very conspicuously in John's gospel. Jesus doesn't come kicking and screaming and opposed to his Father's will in the manner of the redemption of the elect. He does it most willingly. In fact, you can turn to John's gospel, John chapter 10, where we see that willingness on the part of the Word of God to lay down his life for the sheep. 
In John chapter 10, specifically at verse 17, the Lord Jesus says, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So there's both a Godward and a manward aspect in terms of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the one hand, relative or related to his father in terms of the covenant of redemption, he wants to carry out and he's resolved to carry out the work that the father gave him. But the manward application is really encouraging for the saint of Christ. He comes willingly to save us from our sin. And I think that should uh, uh, help us and encourage us when it comes to sharing the gospel or evangelism or preaching the gospel. We ought to realize that God is not opposed to the salvation of sinners. God is in the business of the salvation of sinners. And if we preach sort of a hesitancy on the part of God or we preach sort of a, a, a sluggishness on the part of God, we're not genuinely reflecting the scripture. The overarching theme, the scope of the whole is God's glory in the salvation of his, his people through the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we preach, Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was raised again, believe on him and you will be saved, we do that understanding the larger context from Genesis to Revelation that God has demonstrated his heart towards sinners. He wants to save, he has purposed to save. And it's not just a handful, it's not just the frozen chosen, but it's a great multitude that no man can number. So the willingness of our Savior, the voluntary assumption of his work, ought to encourage the saint of Christ, both in his own life and heart, and as well in his desire to evangelize others with reference to the gospel. And then notice what the confession does here, it, it appeals to what we call in theology the, the, the threefold state of Christ. We've got the threefold office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, but there's a threefold state. We consider Christ pre-incarnate, the word before he became flesh. Now, when we talk about before with reference to an eternal and infinite God, that's to accommodate us. There's no before with Jesus. There's no during with Jesus in terms of, you know, creatureliness, and there's no after. But when it comes to our approach to theology, we see the pre-incarnate state of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was in heaven, and then he comes down, not by sort of a local, a local motion, but by the assumption of our humanity. And then we have what's called the state of humiliation. And in the state of humiliation, we see the assumption of our humanity with all of the essential properties thereof and the common infirmities and yet without sin. So when he assumes our humanity, he is, he is then uh, vulnerable to those things that affect true humanity. He hungers, he thirsts, he sorrows, he, he suffers, he bleeds, he dies. So we refer to that as the state of humiliation. And then the third state is the state of exaltation. So after the resurrection from the dead or the resurrection from the dead is included in that state of exaltation, he then ascends on high, he leads captivity captive and he gives gifts to men. And we refer to that state as the state of exaltation, but we also refer to it as the session or the current session where Christ rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He functions as our advocate with the Father. He is our, our, our blessed friend and Savior and King and Lord. So he willingly undertakes this, and then the state of humiliation is described. 
which that he might, might discharge, he was made under the law. And of course, Galatians 3 is in the background there. The, or Galatians 4, in the fullness of the times, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law. Why was he born under the law? To redeem those who were under the law. In other words, he had to assume our humanity in order to obey for us as a public person. And so this state of humility demanded that he be made under the law. And he did perfectly fulfill it. Later on, the confession is going to celebrate the active and passive obedience of the Lord Jesus. And as I've explained many times, we need his death on the cross and the bloodshed there to cleanse us and to forgive us. But we need his life of obedience in order to provide that, that cloak of righteousness wherein we can be accepted by God. In other words, we need a, uh, a perfect and exact and an entire obedience to God's law. Well, we don't have the wherewithal to do that because in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. So one of the glorious things about the doctrine of justification is that we're cleansed in his precious blood and clothed in his wonderful righteousness. And so that's why he did perfectly fulfill it. In other words, it wasn't simply an example. Oh, let's look at Jesus and how he lived and let's go thou and do likewise. Now, I'm not suggesting we should go and do contrary, but that's not the primary referent or the primary emphasis in the life and obedience of our blessed Savior. He's a public person representing those whom the Father gave him, so he must obey Godwardly and manwardly for us to have that righteousness by which we are accepted by the Father. So we have this state of humiliation. He's made under the law. He did perfectly fulfill it. No blemish, no spot, no nothing. Remember when we went through Leviticus chapters 21 and 22. The emphasis in chapter 21 is on the fitness of the priest, the impurity of the priest, the cleanliness of the priest, or the holiness of the priest. And then in Leviticus chapter 22, you see in addition to that, the, the perfection or the blemishness, uh, a blemish freeness of the animal that was to be sacrificed. Well, in Leviticus 21 and 22, God through Moses is preaching the gospel of Jesus to us by types and shadows and prefigurement to be sure, but we need the Savior to perf perfectly fulfill that righteousness. Notice it continues in terms of the state of humiliation and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us. So again, the accent falls on both aspects of the obedience of Jesus Christ, the active and the passive. We need that life of perfect fulfillment of God's law, and we need that death on Calvary's cross, and that's precisely what's being highlighted here. If you turn over to chapter 11, specifically paragraph 1, if you look at just about the middle of the paragraph, the confession, again, picks up this sort of a motif to encourage us relative to the doctrine of justification. So it tells us that God justifies. It tells us how he doesn't do this. And then it tells us specifically how he does do this. But by imputing Christ's active obedience under the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness, they receiving and resting on him in his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. I think it's good to note here the consistency and the systematic nature of the confession of faith that holds together. 
You don't have a paragraph 8 without a paragraph 2. You don't have a paragraph 11 without a paragraph 8. You don't have the, the application of the redemptive benefit of Christ in paragraphs 10 to 16 or, 7, or 18 rather without the, the paragraphs before that. So it's a systematic presentation of Christian doctrine that does hold together. So it's kind of disingenuous to say, well, yeah, I'm a 1689 Reformed Baptist, but you know, there's these large swaths of the confession that I just don't accept. Well, it's like a house of cards. You pull out one and all of it topples. This, this document holds together. And that's one of the reasons why we use it in our church, not insofar as it is biblical, but because it is biblical. It reflects accurately the teaching of Scripture, and even the words that are used with reference to the, the composition of the various uh, chapters show us or demonstrate, or you can hear in the background, the scriptural statements that it's weaving together to present this doctrinal truth. So he perfectly fulfills the law. He is punish, punished for us. And again, notice that statement in paragraph 4, being made sin and a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God the Father made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. We ought never to, to disregard the language there of for us. God is for us, not, you know, the heathen that's going to be perishing or the reprobate. There is a particularity about the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. It's limited atonement, not limited in terms of its power and efficacy, but limited in terms of its objects. The Lord God Most High has purpose to save a great multitude, and it's those that will be saved. They are saved effectively, they are saved efficaciously, they are saved definitively by the work of the Savior on our behalf. Again, if we think back to the book of Leviticus, on that day of atonement, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and poured out blood on the mercy seat, he wasn't doing that for the Hivites. He wasn't doing that for the Hittites. He wasn't doing that for the Egyptians. He was doing that for the Israel of God. When he goes to lay his hands upon that scapegoat, he confesses not the sins of the Canaanites, but he confesses the sins of Israel. And if you look specifically at John 17, you're still there in John 10, you see the particularity involved in Christ's priestly work. And when he says in chapter 17, verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So the two aspects of priestly service is intercession and sacrifice. Intercession is the act of prayer. And so if we can affirm the particularity of Christ or the limitedness of Christ's prayer for the elect only, then it makes per perfectly sense by good and necessary consequence that the act of sacrifice was particular. It was limited. It was definite. It was applicable not to the world, but with reference to those whom the Father had given him out of the world. So back to paragraph four, we have that substitutionary emphasis and then a bit of a further description of what the Son of Man went through, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. Remember when Cam came to describe or de define personhood. Personhood is the reality that a person has a, a, a body and a reasonable soul. So all that has gone before this builds up and takes us to this particular point. So we ask the question, how could the second person of the Trinity do what he does on our behalf? 
Well, the answer is, paragraph two, he takes on our humanity. Paragraph three, he's anointed for the work by the Spirit. And here in paragraph four, the details. He was crucified, he died, he remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day, he arose from the dead. So now we moved into the state of exaltation. So we move from humiliation to exaltation. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. It's one of the beautiful aspects of the hypostatic union. When Christ assumes our humanity, when he takes to himself a human nature, that's how we will see him. That's how we will witness him. That's how we will view him. He is indeed, now the word became flesh. And so uh, with the same body in which he suffered. I think this is helpful too relative to us dying. And the latter chapters of the confession deal with what's called eschatology or the doctrine of the last things. And it talks about us being raised with the selfsame bodies. There is a continuousness about uh, what we were and what we are in the age to come. And one of the continuousnesses is that we have the self-same body. We're not going to be Brad Pitt after we're in that state of glorification. We're still going to be 5'9". We're still going to be, you know, with all, I don't know what our, our feeble and weakness will look like in that state, but, but it's important that we understand. So when Christ is raised from the dead, he's not a phantom. He's not an apparition. There is continuity between what goes into the grave and what comes out of the grave. But now, he's glorified, certainly. He's, he's glorified when he comes out of the grave, but he has this self-same body with the same body in which he suffered. And then continuing with the state of exaltation with which he also ascended into heaven. And there sitteth at the right hand of his father, making inter intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. So we have here this description, historic description, of the work of Christ in summary fashion as to all of the particular details. So the one described in paragraph one, the one described in paragraphs two and three, is the one who has come to fulfill that covenant with his Father, that one who has come to fulfill that covenant with his people in order to save them from their sins. And then we see the specific operation or central operation. It gets, again, more detail. You find that in the confession. You get a general statement and then further elaboration. A general statement and then more description and more concrete application of it. And so here in paragraph 5, it speaks specifically concerning his sacrifice. So if in the very beginning part of paragraph 4, the accent falls on his, on his righteousness in terms of active obedience, here we see the specific emphasis on his death. So in paragraph 5, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself. So again, this answers the question, how could the death of one man result in the salvation of a great multitude that no man can number? That's not just a rhetorical question I'm offering up. That's been a question throughout the ages. When we speak of Christ and we speak of the redemptive benefit of Christ, we tell that to a heathen or to a pagan, I think it's probably pretty natural for them to respond with the, the, the question, well, well, how does that work? How could it be that one man could, could do such that he did in order to bring salvation for a great multitude of men? 
So that's what the confession highlights now. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, again, active obedience, passive obedience, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God. That language is reminiscent of Hebrews 9.14. Again, listen, when you, when you listen to the confession as it's being read or as you're reading itself, the, the proof texts are certainly helpful, but the, 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 the biblical language that's employed that is put together in such a way to present the doctrinal sort of position is very helpful because I think that's a, that's a fallacy that's, that sort of caricature, uh, caricatures the, the reformed. Oh, you just impose all these categories on the text of Scripture. You, you impose all of these things upon the text of Scripture. No, these guys weren't imposing anything on the Scripture. They read the Scripture, they exegeted the Scripture, they formulated Christian doctrine from the Scripture, and then they articulated that doctrine in wonderful confessions of faith. So the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of God. We typically prefer the language of atonement in our day, but the older boys seem to uh, uh, use the language of satisfaction. Both of them are connected, not to say that atonement doesn't sort of uh, assume uh, satisfaction, but, but this is where it's at, the, the satisfaction of divine justice. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, you'll know the passage. Paul summarizes the, the universal depravity of all men, their liability to the judgment of God Most High. He starts this sort of argument in chapter 1, verse 18. He concludes it in chapter 3 at verse 20 when he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Well, he's going to go on now to justification by faith alone. He's going to give us the specifics in terms of how God saves sinners through and by Jesus Christ. So in chapters 3, 4, and 5, sort of the emphasis is upon justification by faith. How is it that God does what God does? So we, we certainly read those chapters because we want to see the benefits procured by Christ for us. We want to see the, the, the man-word referent and how what Jesus accomplishes on our behalf impacts us, how it brings salvation, how it brings forgiveness, how it brings a righteousness that avails with God. But before Paul deals with the manward effect, he first deals with God. And he does that, notice in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, this isn't a new thing. This is in the law, it's in the prophets, Genesis 15, 6, that first declaration of justification by faith alone. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. David is another example in chapter 4. But then notice, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now notice, he wants us to show that God's justice has been satisfied. In other words, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not because God waved a magic wand and said, you know, I'm just not going to concern myself with your sins anymore. I'm just not going to care whatsoever about your sins anymore. No, the, 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 the glory of the cross is not only that it proclaims the love of God. 
the grace and the mercy of God, but it proclaims the justice and the righteousness of God. And so when we read in our confession, we'll get back to Romans in just a moment, when it says he hath fully satisfied the justice of God, Paul is keen to express that. And incidentally, as you think through this with me, think about 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is loving to forgive us of our sins. That's not what it says. He is loving and he does forgive us, but he's faithful and what? Just to forgive us of our sins. Well, why can John say that? Because of the cross. It publicizes, it demonstrates, it manifests how God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He doesn't sacrifice his righteousness. He doesn't sacrifice his justice. He doesn't sacrifice his law, but he orchestrates the gospel in such a way that Christ satisfies divine justice. He upholds the glory of the law. He demonstrates the, 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 the majesty of God most high. So notice in verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Now that word propitiation is a beautiful Bible word. It has to do, or it assumes or presupposes the wrath of God. God is angry with the wicked every day. Romans chapter 5 speaks about the enmity between us and God. And in Romans 5, it's not our hatred for God, but God's enmity toward us. And so propitiation assumes wrath, and propitiation is the vehicle by which that, that wrath or that justice is satisfied. So Christ doesn't just come as an example to the cross. Christ comes as a propitiation. Christ is the mercy seat. Christ is the one that, that, that satisfies divine justice through his own death. So, so going on, notice, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate Again, not his love. It does, but not here. To demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. I don't believe that means he waved a wand over old covenant citizens. I believe it refers to the fact that Christ was always the plan and purpose of God to take away the sin of the world. And in the old covenant, they were looking forward. In the old covenant, they were, they were looking to the Messiah who would come. And you'll see that as we move through the confession. So he's not passing over in the sense of it no longer exists, but he is not requiting vengeance upon each and every and individual sinner with the thought or the mindset that Christ is going to come and atone for those sins. His forbearance had, uh, because in his forbearance, uh, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Notice again, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is a most wonderful and glorious things, uh, thing. And then notice in chapter 4 at verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So God justifies the ungodly. God demonstrates his righteousness. God demonstrates his justice in the cross. And so back to paragraph five, he hath fully satisfied the justice of God. And in so doing, we have the benefits that accrue as a result of that. 
He procured reconciliation. Again, reconciliation assumes uh, 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 disconnect. It assumes that there are two factions or two parties that, that, that need to come together. You know, if you've ever had a marital spat, I don't want to assume that, but you might need to reconcile. Well, you do need to reconcile. And, and there is a spat between us and the Most High because of our sin. So Christ procured reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Again, you don't see any ambiguity, you don't see any hopefully, we don't see any possibly, we see efficacy, we see power, we see the demonstration of God's purpose and plan in the, in the redeeming work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't provided an atonement that may possibly save if you flip the light of faith on. It may possibly save if you clean up your act. It may possibly save if you start going to church, if you start reading your Bible, if you start giving to the poor. It might possibly save you. No, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, most assuredly saves those whom the Father had given him. So it's a wonderful statement concerning the power of the gospel in terms of the salvation of his people. And then paragraph six speaks of the retrospective benefit. Because again, the question might be asked, well, what about Abel? What about Abraham? What about Isaac? What about Jacob? What about David? What about Daniel? What about Ezekiel? What about Isaiah? How did they enter into heaven? Well, they entered into heaven the same way that we do. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He procured reconciliation, paragraph 5, and he purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Well, God gave Abel to the Lord Jesus. God gave Abraham to the Son. God gave Isaac to the Son. God gave David to the Son. And so chapter or paragraph 6 deals with that. Notice, although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed, and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday and today and forever." So again, the way that the Old Covenant saints entered into the presence of God was the way of the cross. So they looked forward, and that faith was connected or furthered on or, or fed by promises, types, and sacrifices. So in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham takes Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son, his only son, the son whom he loves... That was a prefigurement. It was a type. When Abraham says to Isaac, the Lord will provide, that's not chump change, brethren. Abraham is preaching the gospel there. And he understands that to the degree that God had revealed it by the Spirit. And then when that lamb is caught in the, or that ram is caught in the thicket, that preaches Christ, Leviticus 21 and 22. It's not just a bunch of antiquated sort of barbaric rituals and rites celebrate, celebrated by an ancient people. 
The book of Leviticus is all about Jesus. The book of Leviticus points us forward to the, to the priestly office of Christ, both in intercession and sacrifice. It points us forward to the, to the need for the shedding of blood without which there is no remission. And so the old covenant saints, they were believing on the Lord Jesus Christ through the promises, through the types, through the sacrifices, wherein Christ was revealed. And notice it attaches it to that first gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3 at verse 15, and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head. So Genesis 3.15 is the proto-evangel. It's the first giving of the gospel. And then that ball is furthered down the field by the promises, by the types, by the sacrifices, until the fullness of the time had come, when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So when John the Baptist in John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is speaking a wonderful mouthful of biblically good theology. There's the one that God had promised through the promises, through the types, and through the sacrifices. He has come, and he has come to save his people from their sin. So there's this retrospective application. You turn to Hebrews 9, it gives you that in one summary statement. Hebrews chapter 9. I mean, all of the other proof texts, therefore, sure do that. But notice in Hebrews chapter 9, specifically at verse 15, in a book that is highly charged with making a distinction between the old and the new covenants. The old covenant is now obsolete, not because it was bad, but because Christ fulfilled it. Now the new covenant has come, which affords better promises, a better hope, and brings us a better surety. So in Hebrews 9.15, he says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Again, the question might come up, well, if we render obsolete the old covenant, there might not be any hope for us as the Jewish people. No, it, the hope was always connected to the mediator of the new covenant. The hope was always connected to the one who would come in the fullness of the times that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Again, language that makes its way conspicuously into uh, uh, chapter, chapter 8 in terms of the description of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the, the retrospective application is indicated there in paragraph 6, communication of idioms in paragraph 7. And basically what that means is that when you have the hypostatic union, the one person, two natures. You can go from nature to person, but you can't go from nature to nature. You, you can, whatever is true of the nature, you can predicate of the person. But you can't predicate what is true of one nature to the other nature. Because then you divinize humanity and you humanize divinity, and that is a misstep. So whatever is true of the humanity of Jesus, he, he suffered, he sorrowed, he hungered, he died, we can say of the person of Christ. Whatever is true of the divinity, he's infinite, he's eternal, he's unchangeable, we can say of the person of Christ. And that's what paragraph 7 is telling us. But you can't say of his human nature that it's infinite. You can't say of his human nature that is, that is omnipresent. 
And this, this looms large in, in discussions concerning the Lord's Supper with reference to Roman Catholicism, with reference to Lutheran, Lutheranism, and with reference to the Reform. Because what Roman Catholics do and Lutherans do, but to a lesser degree, is that they divinize the human, humanity. They say that Christ is physically present. His body and blood are physically present at the supper. But that's not a property of true humanity. That is not something that true humanity can do. True humanity is not omnipresent. And so if we divinize his humanity, then his humanity is no longer our humanity, and there is no salvation for us. Whatever is assumed is healed. If he doesn't assume our humanity with all of its you know, weaknesses and intrinsicness or creatureliness and, and limitations, then we have no salvation. So, so that's what paragraph 7 is doing, and as I've said before, we owe a lot to Cyril of Alexandria for an emphasis this way. There were other fathers that dealt with this prior, but Cyril seemed to come along and just hammer it out in a, in a, in a very wonderful way. And then in paragraph 8, you see the effectual application of all that has gone before. So in other words, paragraphs 4 to 6 tell us how great what he does is. Paragraph 8 tells us that it's applied to all those for whom Christ hath obtained eternal redemption. Again, it's not sort of ambiguous. It's not vague. It's not just sort of put out there that, you know, hopefully this happens. Hopefully you'll, you know, click your fingers and exercise your faith and you'll come into saving union with the Lord Jesus. I'm I praise God that our salvation doesn't hang upon our free will, doesn't hang upon our decisions, doesn't hang upon, you know, our deliberations. Well, we've surveyed the data, and yes, I think I'll give my heart to Jesus. That's not how the Bible describes it. God makes men willing in the day of his power. God Most High effectually applies the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus, and that's underscored there in paragraph 8. So the object of his work is to all those. To all those for whom Christ hath obtained eternal redemption. Notice the essence of his work is, is described. He doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing unto them in and by the word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom, in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation, and all of free and absolute grace, without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. So in case you missed it, the divines are saying it's particular, it's limited, it's definite, it's it's not based on foreseen conditions in the center. God doesn't look down the tunnel of time and say, hey, Joe Smith is going to believe the gospel, so I'm going to go ahead and elect him for salvation. That gets it absolutely backwards. It does not reflect the teaching of the apostle in Romans 8. You can turn there. Romans 8, specifically at verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And then notice the language, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew. Now, it may be obscure or it may be a little detail, but notice it's not for what he foreknew. For, for what he foreknew. 
The what would be, oh yeah, this Joe Smith is going to believe, this Joe Smith is going to repent. No, no, the foreknowledge here isn't looking down the tunnel of time and then basing the eternal decree on what may or may not happen. Foreknowledge here speaks to love. It speaks to affection. It speaks to God's good pleasure resting upon a needy sinner. So for whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Again, there's no vagueness there. There's no sort of universe, uh, universality there. Well, you know, if you find yourself having aspirations for Christianity, you find yourselves in a, in a difficult situation, and, and you decide, you, you dig down deep, and you decide you're going to believe on Jesus, well, well then all these benefits accrue. No, these benefits are there purchased by the Lord Jesus for those, for those, for those. Look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Again, this idea that he looks down the tunnel of time and based on what Joe Smith does is how God decrees all things is exactly backwards. Acts chapter 13, specifically at verse 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Notice it is not they believed and then were appointed to eternal life. We believe because we have been by grace appointed to eternal life. We don't become appointed to eternal life because we exercise our free will and believe. No, it's exactly the opposite. All that the Father gives me will come to me, John 6, 37. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So there's a heavy emphasis on this work of God in the salvation of needy sinners, which we ought to be very thankful for as needy sinners. If God does not purpose and plan and determine to save us from our sins, we're not going to be saved. So without the efficacy of God's grace, there is no salvation. And so the confession continually reiterates that. And then notice, paragraph 9, I want to run through this somewhat quickly so we can complete it. The exclusivity of Christ as the mediator. Paragraph 9, this office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ. It is proper only to Christ. It's not proper, again, to the Pope of Rome and to the popes in Protestantism. I think one of the good arguments, just by way of a corollary, for a confession of faith is to protect us from Protestant popery. Protestant popery is when a man and his Bible determines the life of the church. Well, the man becomes a pope. I mean, he doesn't wear the hat and have the big stick and, you know, look weird like Francis does. But, but nevertheless, they're their own popes. They're their own papas. They're the, own, they're, they're, the own govern, they're, they're the governors in their local bodies. So, so for Protestants to recoil with uh, horror at, at Romanism because they've got a pope, we need to start looking at our own neighborhood. I mean, there's a lot of popes in Protestantism that if you defy them or you go against them or you've got a particular problem with them, you are, you're outside. There, there's big problems there. So the office of me, this office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God 
and just in case you didn't get that, and may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. The proof text there is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There, there's one mediator. Now, it goes on to describe the specific details with reference to prophet, priest, and king in paragraph 10. And just to demonstrate with two quick texts that this isn't an imposition upon the Bible. Oh, you know, that, that, that concept of prophet, priest, and king fits your covenant theology. It fits your sort of reformed distinctives. It fits your, you know, your, your, your confessions and faith. So, so, so you just, you impose that on the scripture. No, that's not it at all. Matthew chapter 12 you see an emphasis on those three offices of Christ. Matthew chapter 12, specifically in verse 6. The Lord Jesus, invoking sort of a priestly metaphor, says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Christ is the reason for which the temple existed. This is why, you know, dispensationalism with its return to a millennial kingdom with an earthly temple and a sacrificial system is another backward step in redemptive history. The tabernacle and the temple were not the ends of themselves. They pointed forward to, they were prefigurements, they were typological. Now that the substance has come, why would we go backwards? When I'm holding my grandson or granddaughter, why do I need to look at the picture on the phone? I've got the substance. So this is a backward trajectory in dispensationalist thought to rebuild the temple so that Jesus can come back and sit on David's throne there. No, Christ is the reason for the temple's existence. It pointed to him. And he is greater than the temple. I think that's a reference to his priestly ministry, priestly office. Notice in verse 41, same chapter. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. He's a greater prophet than Jonah. And then notice in verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. And when you move through the pages of the New Testament, you see the prophetic ministry on the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. When the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, He then says, hear Him. You ought to hear the echoes of Deuteronomy 18.15 when God promises a succession of prophets that will terminate in the person of the Son. It says, hear Him. Acts 3.22, the Apostle Peter applies the Deuteronomy 18.15 passage to the Lord Jesus Christ. The priestly ministry of Jesus. It's obvious. I don't pray for the world, but I pray for those you've given me out of the world, for they are yours. And then he makes sacrifice for us. So intercession and sacrifice is for us. So he does the office of priest. But as well, king. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. One other passage that puts in one summary statement the threefold office is the book of Revelation. You can turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. He gives this benediction or this greeting in the name of the triune God. And in verse 4, he says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. 
and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. I take that as a reference to the Father and to the Spirit. doesn't mean there's seven holy spirits. I think the language of seven is completeness. It is the, the Spirit of the living God. And then notice, and from Jesus Christ, note the three offices, the faithful witness. That's what a prophet does. The firstborn from the dead, a reference to his sacrifice as priest and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Again, his kingly office. So this isn't something imposed upon Scripture. This is something exegeted from Scripture and applied to us in our need. So in paragraph 10, this number and order of offices is necessary. For in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. We need Christ to teach us. We need Christ to, to instruct us. We need Christ to command us. We're, we're ignorant. We're, we're dumb. And, you know, if this offends you, I'm sorry, but we are. We, we don't think God's thoughts after him. We need the prophet Christ to instruct us. And in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God. We need that reconciliation, the bringing together of father and sinner, such that we can be acceptable unto God. And in respect of our averseness and utter inability to return to God, and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need His kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to His heavenly kingdom. So we've got this emphasis on the threefold office, not only that he satisfies it as our mediator, but in the application. Generally, paragraph 8, the absolute necessity, paragraph 9, and then the detailed uh, 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 explanation and its application to us in paragraph 10. So in conclusion, remember, with reference to the person of Christ. You've got the Word who became flesh for us men and for our salvation. With reference to the work of Christ, it wasn't first and foremost to be an example, to show us how to dig deep and be more loving to our fellows. No, it was first and foremost as the mediator of the new covenant, to function as a prophet, priest, and king to save us from our sins. Well, let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the gospel of our salvation. We rejoice in what you have done. We rejoice in our Bibles at what it expresses and reveals to us concerning the, the work of redemption. And we stand in awe at the word who became flesh, that he dwelt among us and that he lived for us and that he died for us, that he was raised for us. And now he ever lives to make intercession for us. And he serves and functions as our advocate with the Father. May these things be preached throughout the world, and may that word run swiftly and be glorified. And we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we need to set up for the uh, function, so no time for questions.